Good morning, church family. It's good to see every one of you. It's great to be here. I, I don't know about you, but I was just so, so moved after this morning's worship. Uh, Jesus, the name, his name is so great. The lamb who was slain for us. And I just so overcome this morning, and I, and I just thought, I'm so excited for this sermon series through the Gospel of John. I mean, I, no, no offense to my Old Testament people, to you know, Zach Saban, Zach, and Manuel Ramos, if he was here, but I think I could be in the Gospels every, every Sunday. I just love Jesus. He is so awesome. He's so awesome. And I'm so glad that we get to be in this series together. And if you were with us last week, last week we talked about how Jesus transforms everything that we see. And I invited you to come and see for yourself. And if we did that, I said we would see greater things. Jesus said to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things. And that's basically how chapter 1 of John ends. So it's no surprise that the very next thing that happens is a miraculous sign, a greater thing. John calls this miracle the first sign. And as I've sat with this text this week, I'm finding myself in agreement with the scholar C.K. Barrett, who said that John may mean more than the first of a series, but also may mean primary or primary sign. Because this sign is representative of the creative and transforming work of Jesus as a whole. Did you catch that? Catch that? This sign can be a symbol, a metaphor in which you see all that Jesus does and has done and will do in our lives. John writes that Jesus came to bring us life, life to the full. His resurrection power will transform everything like water turning into wine. Jesus' life transforms our ordinary, everyday lives. Now, I think sometimes when we Christians, we talk about transformation, it, it sounds like such a big word. It sounds like it's out of this world. And we, or, we, or we might think of miracles and signs and wonders, which do happen still today, by the way. But sometimes we forget how Jesus' power transforms every facet every part of our lives. So I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. And I want to look at five ordinary things, five very human things that Jesus transforms. We're going to talk about how Jesus transforms enjoying creation, how he transforms marriage and singleness, the relationships between parents and children, hospitality and service. So I'm going to begin by talking about how Jesus transforms enjoying creation. He transforms enjoying creation. Now, I think one, people, one thing that people always wonder about when it comes to the story is the issue of alcohol and drunkenness in the story. Was Jesus enabling? Was Jesus uh, condoning drunkenness? Did he make it happen at this party? I don't think so. Drunk, drunkenness was considered a disgrace to the Jewish people, and the Bible is clear. Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Now, it's possible, maybe likely, that some people probably had too much to drink at this wedding, but I don't think the story points to that as a point at all. But it does point to people enjoying themselves and enjoying the wine. 
Bible readers, as we, we mentioned this last week, we must reckon with the fact that there are two things that are true at the same time. On one hand, the Bible teaches that drunkenness is wrong, but it also teaches at the same time that wine is supremely good, and God's given it to us for our joy. Both of those are true in the Bible. Wine was actually part of the blessing that God said his people would have when they entered the promised land. In fact, when God was inviting them to a festival in the book of Deuteronomy, I want you to see this because we don't, we don't think about God inviting anyone to do this. And he's talking about bringing in the tithe to a festival. And God says, you may spend the silver on anything you want, cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything you desire. You are to feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your family. God was inviting his people to a feast. Come feast in my presence. Let me give you one more from Psalm 104. It says, and this is a worship song, by the way. It says, he causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crop, crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil, and bread that sustains human hearts. The Bible says that wine makes the human heart glad. And wine is not juice. But it's also fair to say, it's, and it's not a legalistic thing to say, that wine back then is different than wine is today. Um, you know, I read, there's many different figures that the commentaries will give, but one figure I, I, I read that seemed about average was, typical, the typical glass was three parts water and two parts wine. So three-fifths of your glass was water, two parts were wine. But that still doesn't make it grape juice, does it? It's still wine. And the Jewish people praise God for wine. One of the traditional prayers. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, the King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. So wine is good, according to God. Now, wine is not a necessity for a good life. And some people truly need to avoid alcohol because of the seriousness of alcoholism and substance abuse and addiction. Many of us can testify to members in our family, people we know, where alcohol has destroyed lives. So I'm not trying to minimize that, that it is a serious thing we need to reckon with. But what I'm mainly getting at is often, us Christians, we can have two different tendencies. One tendency is to enjoy creation too much. We turn it into an idol. We get, we get caught up in food or drink or substances, sex or entertainment. And we can, get, we can get caught up in the pleasures of this world and turn them into idols that destroy our lives. And alcohol has that possibility. The other extreme is to reject all of the pleasures of the world. To create false boundaries and legalisms that prevent people from enjoying what God has created. Now, like I said before, there are very good reasons why many people choose to abstain from alcohol. That's great. But also, we should not make that a command for everyone. The Bible warns us about this in, in 1 Timothy 4. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So taken rightly, in the right attitude of worship and thanksgiving, if you can glorify God with what you're about to do, then we're invited to enjoy what God has made. So Jesus transforms even enjoying creation into an act of worship. 
That ever, did you catch that? If it's received with thanksgiving, by the word of God and prayer, that means everything you do, everything that you might enjoy in this life, through Jesus and in Jesus can be an act of worship in him. When you practice his presence, when you invite God into everything that you do, it all becomes thanksgiving and worship. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And that's how Jesus transforms enjoying creation from water to wine. The second area of our ordinary lives that Jesus transforms is Jesus transforms singleness and marriage. Singleness and marriage. You've probably heard this text, I'm sure, at a number of Christian weddings, uh, and I think for good reason. Jesus' presence at a wedding, it honors the, the, uh, the institution of marriage in a profound way. Jesus is there to celebrate and participate in the festivities of a man and woman coming together in marriage. Jesus honors marriage because it was his idea. He's fully God and fully man. John, we open in John 1. In the, word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Jesus was there. In God, there is Jesus. So Jesus created marriage. So in fact, left to our own devices, humanity throughout all of history, we've come up with our own ideas, our all kinds of arrangements to, re- to regulate marriage, sexuality, and the family. But Jesus said in Matthew 19, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So that they are no longer two, but one flesh. So according to Jesus in the word, God does the joining together of a man and woman to form a new household. This union was God's idea. As he told humanity, go be fruitful and multiply. Go fill the earth. God knew that you and I, us human beings with souls, that we would be formed by this union between man and woman. That all of us came from that union. And God thought it would be good that we would be raised and welcomed by a mother and a father, Lord willing. That was God's idea. So it's a profound sacred union that Jesus honors and upholds. But also, Jesus' transforming power can take marriage and change it from water to wine. Change it from the inside out. What was water will become wine in his kingdom. What do I mean? Well, in the world of Jesus, in a world of patriarchal power, when husbands had all the power and authority over their wives, the gospel called husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. How did Jesus love the church? Did he not give everything of himself, becoming the lowest slave, dying upon the cro- on the cross for our sins, giving up his very life? That shatters the idea of what marriage was in the world of Jesus. It changes it from the inside out, from water into wine. What had become a tool of power and patriarchy is changed. And today, marriage is often used as a tool for self-fulfillment, self-actualization. But in Jesus' kingdom, it becomes a picture of self-giving, sacrificial love based on the life and love of Jesus. In Jesus, marriage then is a tool for sanctification unto the likeness of Jesus. 
it becomes a household not to raise up workers or heirs or athlete prodigies, but raising up sons and daughters of the king. Sons and daughters of the king. And while it's not directly in our text, I would be remiss if I didn't say the same thing about singleness as well. By his very life of singleness, Jesus sanctified and transformed it to the uttermost. Jesus lived the perfect human life ever. Amen? The perfect human life. And while marriage is a good thing created and transformed by Jesus, it is also not an ultimate thing. The life of Jesus in his singleness shows us that marriage and sex and having children, they are not fundamental to our identity and well-being as image bearers of God. You have to remember too, that the early church viewed singleness so highly because Jesus was single. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. He commends it to the church. They viewed it so highly that Paul had to say, hey, if you decide to get married, you haven't sinned. I mean, can you imagine anyone saying this today? If you decide to get married, well, you're not a sinner. Praise God. That's how highly they viewed it. Jesus transforms singleness from water to wine. It becomes a blessing, a calling, a vocation unto the flourishing of life in his kingdom and for his glory. Both of these, from water to wine. The third ordinary thing that Jesus absolutely transforms is the relationship between parents and children. Now, this is one of the few interactions we have recorded of Jesus with his mother. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Gosh, I love how human and relatable that is. I feel like any, any person, you know, a mother or a wife, it's like, it's, it's the request without it being a request. Excuse me? They don't have any wine. Well, what would you like me to do about that? <laughs> we all can relate to that, can we? What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, depending on how you read this text, it could sound like Jesus is being very cold and indifferent to his mother. What is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? I mean, if you read it that way, it sounds, very, it sounds bad. But Jesus uses the word woman for his mother when he's on the cross. I don't think he would, he would use that word. When he's literally dying and giving his life, you would not use the, a, a disrespectful word for your own mother. It says in John 19, when Jesus saw his mother, this is when he's on the cross, and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the, to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So when Jesus says, woman, here, he's not demeaning his mother. Jesus loved his mother. Jesus kept the law perfectly, right? Jesus was sinless, right? So that means he obeyed perfectly the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. He honored his mother perfectly in his life. So Jesus shows us by his example how we can begin to, how we relate to our parents and our children. So children, 
how you obey your, your parents when you're, when you're little and how we honor them. And I'm talking about when, you, when, you, when you're an adult too, how you honor them as you get older. That's part of your discipleship and your life in Jesus. That's part of your life in Jesus. This continues throughout our lives. On the cross, Jesus made sure, as, as the eldest son in his family, remember Jesus had brothers and sisters, as the eldest son in his family, as he's dying, he makes sure his mother is going to be taken care of. We think of John. John, you're going to take care of my mother. Take care of my mother. The gospel of Jesus transforms how we care for our parents even as they age. Isn't that a thing all of us can, are going to have to relate to at some point? I don't think we talk about this that much, but in 1 Timothy 5, you know, the church was wanting to, wanting to support widows. And Paul says, If a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents or grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see, the issue that was going on was the church was taking on the care, the practical financial care and support of the widows in the community. But there were people, these widows had family members in the church. Their kids and grandkids. And so the church is saying, you can't burden the church of this responsibility. Put your faith into practice. Care for your mom and dad. Care for your grandma and grandpa. That's your responsibility as believers in Jesus. And as believers in Jesus, I believe we should be the model people for how care for our parents and grandparents as they age. We should be the best at that, whether that's taking, taking them into your home or whether that's making sure they get the care that you cannot provide for yourself. Whatever it is that you decide, and there's a lot to discern in that conversation, but nevertheless, the gospel heightens our commitment to care for our parents and grandparents well. So in Christ, our relationship to our parents is transformed our whole life long. In addition, parents, your relationship to your children is transformed your whole life long as well. Paul wrote, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Parenting itself is transformed from water to wine. Parents, you're not just trying to keep a human being alive, and that's a tall task sometimes. (laughs) It's just keeping them alive. You're not trying to make a good student. You're not trying to make a scholarship-bound athlete. Your primary calling is to raise up your kids as disciples of Jesus, to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What is training? Isn't that not intentional? I mean, we could have a whole workshop on that. But training and instruction of the Lord. Now, I want to say that we can't control the outcome. We can't control the outcome of how our kids turn out. But we can only control what we do. Are we bringing them up in the training and instruction of the Lord? And even after they leave the house, even after they're adults, can we not yet still point them to the Lord? Say, Jesus still loves you. Jesus is still the way. Jesus is still the truth. The problems you're dealing with in your life, I believe Jesus has something to say about it. Jesus has hope. 
Jesus can transform. We can't control what anybody does. We can only control what we do. Can we point them to Jesus our whole life long? Especially as kids, but even when you have adult children, keep pointing them to the one who's the savior of the world. So across the board, the relationship between parents and children, it's transformed, it's heightened. But perhaps in a greater, even greater transformation is that these relationships are also relativized. You know what I mean by that? Jesus knows he has a greater mission. And he says to his mom, what does this concern of yours have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does Jesus mean there? Well, typically in John, Jesus' hour is his time on the cross. This impending hour, this impending moment that he knows that he came for. And so Jesus knows that when he begins to reveal his miraculous power, he is going to inevitably begin that march towards the cross. So Jesus is asserting that he has concerns, he has a mission, he has a purpose that outweigh his mother's concerns. But Mary is bold. Mary is bold. And that still being the case, she intercedes nevertheless for Jesus to do something. And it's almost always in the Gospels, Jesus is moved by the faith and the persistence of those who would seek something from him. And Mary, she shows her faith in Jesus by pressing in, by interceding. And then she says, just do whatever he tells you. She intercedes for an intervention, but she leaves the method up to Jesus. Lord, there's a problem. You're the one who knows how to solve it. So for the Christian, this is what transforms our relationships to our parents, to our families. First and foremost, we do whatever Jesus tells us. Whatever he tells us. From now on, you have a higher calling. You have a higher allegiance to that of your family. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is radical. You have to put me first, even over your whole family. In Jesus, our relationship to family is transformed. On the one hand, we're called to train our children up. We're called to point them to Jesus. We're called to care for our parents because of our commitment to Christ. And at the same time, Jesus is far more important. His kingdom is first. And it's only when you put his kingdom first, then your family will flourish and all these things will be added to you as well. That changes it from water to wine. The fourth ordinary thing that Jesus transforms is he transforms hospitality. Hospitality was considered a sacred duty in both the Old and New Testament worlds. And that's why running out of wine was a really, really big deal. And I can't stress that enough. Um, it would bring shame on the whole family. Remember, the whole village is probably there and other people from surrounding villages are there as well. So everybody you know is at this wedding. And one scholar says it would bring, could bring shame on the family for years to come. Have that on your family? And Jesus not only meets this need, but he does so in an exuberant way. Now, we're told that there were six huge jars that held between 20 to 30 gallons. Now, do the math. That's anywhere from 120 
to 180 gallons of wine. You average it out, let's say Jesus made 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine. This is a ridiculous amount of wine. And not only was it ridiculous in the amount, it was also the best quality of wine served that whole evening. What did the master of the bank would say? You've reserved the best for last. Now Jesus, I think he loves to give surprisingly, exuberantly, in both quantity and quality. And this is what will transform hospitality from water to wine. What that means is we don't simply meet people's needs. We surprise them with the love of God. When someone asks us to go one mile, we surprise them and go two. We go above and beyond what the expectations are. But the problem is, even in our hospitality sometimes, even in our generosity towards others, we can tend, if we're honest, we can tend to be calculating or cheap, or do the bare minimum, or make sure we're repaid back in some way for what we've given. But Jesus goes above and beyond. He surprises people with this exuberant, joyful giving. And remember, after feeding 5,000 people, they picked up 12 basketfuls of bread after the fact. Jesus goes above and beyond. He transforms hospitality from social convention or obligation to an occasion for surprising, joyous, ridiculous, over-the-top generosity and love. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? That's who Jesus is. He wants us to surprise people with how much we love them. Surprise people with generous gifts. Go over the top. Go over the top with love. And see how that changes things, how that changes people from water to wine. Finally, the ordinary part of life that Jesus transforms is service. He transforms service. I do not think it's accidental that only Mary, the disciples, and the servants know about this miracle. All the other guests of the party, everybody's celebrating. They have no idea. The bride and groom have no idea. The master of the banquet has no idea about this miracle. Only the servants, only the people there assisting Jesus know about the miracle. I don't think that's accidental because God honors humble service. God honors humble service. What does it say? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus essentially said, hey, if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be first, be last. Be the servant of all. And Jesus involves the servants in the, in the miracle and he allows them on the inside to see more of his glory. Now, I want to be clear that the servants, they did not do anything miraculous. They did, they, the, the servants really didn't do anything that important. They simply obeyed Jesus' directions. Fill the jars with water. They fill it to the brim. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And then they did. That's all the servants did. That's all they did. They filled the water and they brought it to the master of the banquet. Jesus is the hero of the story. He's the one who turns the water into wine. But he chose to use these servants. And he reveals to them his glory. 
And I believe God still chooses to use servants today. His kingdom is a kingdom of servants. And I think an area that, that, trip, that trips all of us up is, gosh, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want water to turn into wine? I mean, every, we want water into wine. We want transformation in our lives. We want things to get better. We want to see transformation in our church, in our world. But who wants to go fill some large jars with water? Who wants to sign up for that? Who wants to be behind the scenes with no recognition from anybody else? Who wants to be filling jars while everybody else is out partying and having fun? I mean, God wants us to have fun. But service requires sacrifice. Rarely do we see transformation without service. And certainly we don't see transformation if we don't have obedience. I mean, Mary told the servants, do whatever he tells you. There's Mary speaking some words of wisdom. Mother Mary comes to me, (laughs) speaking some words of wisdom. Do what he tells you, just let it be. Do what he tells you and let it be. That's what he says. But if you aren't doing what Jesus tells you, I don't think you can expect water to turn into wine. You can't expect transformation if we're not obeying our Lord. We have to do what he tells, you, tells us. But if we do obey him, if we do seek his kingdom first with lives of service, just watch out. Watch him start turning water into wine everywhere you go. Jesus brings the power of heaven to transform our ordinary lives. And when you trust in him, you bring the power of heaven into your ordinary life. Jesus, if you let him, he'll change your married life, he'll change your single life, he will transform your relationship with your family, he will turn you into a surprisingly hospitable and generous person, he will transform the way you experience and enjoy all the ordinary things of life, and he will transform your small, unnoticed acts of service into his grand plans of transforming all of creation. Isn't that amazing? So I just want to ask you one question as we close. What do you long to see Jesus change from water into wine in your life? What do you long to see Jesus change from water into wine in your life? Could be a relationship, could be a habit, could be your service, could be something very ordinary. And I just want to say to you, in his kingdom, heaven is open, his power is available, And he can do more than all you ask or imagine. So I invite you, seek his transformation. And then listen to whatever it is he tells you to do. And then do whatever he tells you. And you'll see water turned into wine.